The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to turn to Ecclesiastes now. I'm going to pray over our time, and then we'll get to it. So we'll be in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11, if you have um, your Bible and want to look through as we're, as we're working through the passage. So uh, let's pray together. God, we are thankful for your word, and we're thankful that we have it in uh, translation so that we can understand that through, uh, through these words, we can understand your character, we can understand our place in the world, uh, that you have offered us life, that um, as creator and, and sustainer of all things, that you continue to sustain us. Uh, enrich us this morning by your word. Um, I pray that you would help us to to find ideas that we resonate with, that your spirit would be active in us, that we would be able to hear you clearly and to hear your voice speaking through your word above all else. Amen. Um, so uh, we talked last week about Ecclesiastes and about wisdom literature in general. Um, so I'm hopeful that that was an edifying exercise, and it helped to get your feet wet a little bit for what wisdom literature is in general and what Ecclesiastes is in particular. Uh, Because Ecclesiastes is a tricky book, uh, so make no mistake about that. Hopefully, over the course of the week, you've had a chance to at least skim the content of the book, and it it gives you some sense for, uh, for what's there. And in all scripture reading, and I'll just say this, and I, I, I think that there'd be buy-in across the board on, on leadership, is in all scripture reading and in all sermon series, our goal here really is just to hear God. Um, we want to hear what he's saying to us through his word. We want to hear it as individuals, but we want to hear it corporately as well. Uh, so we want to be receptive, and we want to engage in the sometimes challenging task of hearing God's word. And I think that that challenge is evident in Ecclesiastes. And I don't say that to be negative, I just say it to be realistic, that, that there's some challenging content there. So as we work through it, uh, my prayer is that we would be open and receptive to what God is doing. Now, Ecclesiastes is a challenging book for, in my mind, just one simple reason. It deals with reality. Uh, It deals with the question of our lives. So if you're going to think about deep questions, the, the answers have to extend beyond a bumper sticker. And when we're dealing with complex realities, we should expect that there's going to be some complex, uh, some complex answers. And Ecclesiastes is dealing with issues that are central to our lives. So who is God? How do we relate to God? What is the world? How do we make sense of our place in it? Do our lives have meaning and value and purpose? And if so, how do we experience that? What do we make of our work? Uh, What do we make of our relationships? What do we make of all the experiences that we have? These are all deep, deep questions. And in the midst of all these big questions, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, One of the things I've noticed over the last couple weeks is when people are making videos or they're recording podcasts, they're they're having to mention that we are actually in the middle of a global pandemic. So the things that they're saying are put put in some context. And the people that I'm dealing with uh, day in and day out 
uh, the people that I'm talking with are really struggling. Um, so there are huge global questions, there are social questions, economic questions, all the complex stuff that's being dealt with on the grand scale. And then on the individual scale, people are struggling. Uh, people are disconnected from friends and family. They ache to be in community with people, to be face-to-face -face and to be in each other's homes. And people are really uh, struggling. And my question in the midst of all of that chaos and all of that noise and all of that uncertainty is how can we hear God well and how can we respond to him in that time? So I believe that we need to attend carefully to be able to hear what God is saying. Um, through his word. We're desperate in the midst of this time and in the midst of our lives to hear words of joy, words of gratitude, words of encouragement, especially where people are walking in such anxiety. Uh, they're walking in fear, and some are walking in despair. And we want to be sensitive to that, because as you read Ecclesiastes, there can be some places that are, are pretty heavy going, so we want to respond to that with sensitivity. But at, at the same time, that's what I love most about Ecclesiastes, is on the one hand, you could have somebody who is sort of a naive optimist, and that doesn't answer the question. But on the other extreme, you have somebody who's sort of the jaded cynic, and you have both of these extremes, and Ecclesiastes is not an either-or approach. It deals with, uh, with both. So um, it's not blind optimism, just saying that everything's great and everything's going to be okay, all those sorts of things. But it also doesn't plunge us into the depths of despair. Um, I think that the book holds the reality of a corrupt world where awful and unspeakable things happen. It holds that intention with the fact that it's still a world that is infused with grace and generosity of the God who created it in the first place. And that, to me, aside from it being in the Bible, is what gives it credibility. It speaks to both of those realities at the same time. And from our experience of the world, I feel like we know it has to be both. Everything that we experience in God's world has the potential to be life-giving, it has the potential to be edifying and encouraging, or it, it, can, it can cause us stress and anxiety. So what I love about Ecclesiastes is that it's both and. It's not an either-or. So without further ado, I'm going to read the passage. We'll be reading the first 11 verses, so I will be reading that now. The words of the preacher, the son of David... King in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, 
nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So you can see right off the bat, I mean, the first two verses have the vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity, all is vanity. So we're going to talk about that. And if I could just preach the entire sermon to you in 10 seconds, here's what it would look like. The first two verses, verses 1 and 2, human life is a vapor. Verses 3 to 7, human life is a vapor compared to the earth. And the third point I would make is that human life is a vapor compared to the scope of reality, or the scope of history, excuse me. That's verses 8 to 11. And I feel like this is better reality. Um, You can try to get around it all you want, um, and our culture seems bent on trying to get around it, but eventually you're going with that reality. Human life is a vapor. So uh, when I say that you, you will collide with it, I had a collision earlier uh, this week when one of my children, whom I love, uh, said, he looked over at me at the dinner table and said, Dad, you have, um, you have milk in your hair. And I would just was confused for a second, thinking like how, I mean, you'd think there was some wild cookie eating or something that put milk in my hair. So I, I dusted the front to see, well, where would there be milk in my hair? And then everybody just sort of looked down. Uh, some people started smirking. It's not actually milk in my hair. It's that, that my, my body is going south on me and my hair is turning white. So eventually you are going to collide uh, with that reality. Our culture is bent on getting around it. It's trying to sell you youth and vigor and all that stuff. But eventually you will... Uh, collide with that reality. So we're going to talk about that. But we're also going to talk about how there's two different ways you can respond to that. Nothing that you do is going to change reality ultimately. But I think that you can respond in two different ways. One is you can look at the fact that your life is a vapor, that your life compared to the earth is a vapor, and that your experience on the earth is not ultimately lasting. You can experience that as liberation, in a sense, or it can cause you to despair. So those are the two possibilities of how you can respond to that. Um, So as we're working through the passage, I want us to think about how we could respond in either of those two ways. Respond with joy and thanksgiving, we can also uh, respond with a certain level of despair. And I think that what we're going to find as we work through the book is that you're always sort of teetering on knife's edge in terms of perspective that stray just a little bit, and you can sense from reading verse 2, if you're reading it in the NIV, it says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Uh, That's not a constructive message of hope. Uh, so you're always going to be on, on the edge of reality that, boy, I could experience this with joy and with thanksgiving, or this can cause me to despair. And if you view your relationships or your work or anything, anything that you experience in 
world. You're always going to be stuck in that paradox between those two, those two edges. So my main point today is very simple, is that we can cultivate simple joy even though our time and our efforts on earth are not permanent. So I'll say that one more time. We can cultivate simple joy even though our time and efforts on earth are impermanent. So let's start in verses 1 and 2. Human life is a vapor. After a very, very short introduction, uh, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, and that's just a way of saying that this is a person who's done it all, they've seen it all, they've heard it all, they've experienced it all, so that gives them authority to speak to these profound issues. So the teacher is introduced, and you have verse 2, which is, Hevel of Hevel. We talked about this word last week, but I want to recap a little bit and maybe push a little bit further in terms of the meaning of this word because I think it's so important to understanding the book. As I mentioned, the NIV translates it as meaningless. Uh, The ESV and a lot of other translations have it as vanity. So we struggle right from the jump to make sense of what that word is. And understanding that word, I believe, is so crucial to understanding Ecclesiastes. So Hevel, uh, as I said last week, um, it's not meaningless in the sense of being pointless. It's just transitory in the sense that it is of no lasting uh, consequence. So I have a slide here that has a couple different uses. It's fairly common in the Old Testament. You can find other places. The word hevel is used of human beings in Psalm 39, Psalm 62, Psalm 78, Job 7. So it says that human beings are hevel. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're meaningless. It just means that they're transitory. They're, they're of, they don't last. That, that's one way to, to think about it. Job 21 says that human words are hevel. Um, and one that we're we're probably more familiar with is the description in Proverbs 31 where it says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. So that word fleeting is the word hevel. So human physical beauty is described as hevel in the Bible. And there's lots of other places where it's used. When the Israelites try to make foreign alliances, like with the Egyptians, for example, that alliance is described as hevel, which means that it's, it's, it's not going to last. Um, it's of, of no ultimate consequence. And as we think about this word, you'll see it a lot in Ecclesiastes. We want to have this sense that you can't capture it. You can't grab it. It's like fog. It's like smoke. And we don't get to keep it. Like that's what Hevel is. That it's, it's not something that's ultimate. It's something that's transitory. But that doesn't mean that it's meaningless. And I hope that that's something that comes across clearly. So the teacher starts out with words that seem to offer very little joy. Human life is a vapor. Vapor is another way to translate hevel. That's why I chose the word for the the sermon today. Um, So it seems to offer very little joy. In fact, these words seem to be pointing toward despair and pointlessness. It's sort of like this gospel of whatever, as though nothing matters. And that's what That's a lot of the way people interpret Ecclesiastes, uh, as though existence is pointless, existence is meaningless, there's nothing that that matters. And I'm going to try to stress that that's actually not the case. So that's it. The first two verses describe that human life uh, is a vapor. But the teacher goes on, and he shifts 
introductory remarks to a rhetorical question. So in verses 3 to 7, I think that describes that human life is a vapor compared to the earth. So he starts with this rhetorical question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So that's verse 3. He opens with this rhetorical question, and then as you would expect, he's going to make some, some stabs at answering that question. So that's verse 3. So I think key to understand question is understanding two words. The first word is gain, and the second word is toil. So first, the word is gain. Uh, this is actually a completely unique Ecclesiastes word. So there's nowhere else that this word happens in the Old Testament. It's unique to Ecclesiastes. It happens in other literature in the ancient Near East, but it's unique to Ecclesiastes in the Bible. And it has the sense of surplus or advantage or having an edge. So um, one way to put it might be, what edge does a person gain uh, from all their toil? And when we say edge, what, we're, what we mean is something that gives you some advantage over other people. So um, you might take some sort of supplement that makes you a super athlete. That gives you an edge over your opponent. I think of Sadly, I think of baseball through uh, much of the 90s and late 80s, where the edge that people gained was through performance-enhancing drugs. But the idea here is um, that you have some sort of advantage. And it has this kind of consumer, almost competitive flavor to it. So um, when Ecclesiastes, when he asks the question, what does man gain, what he's saying is what edge um, when you consider all of his toil. And I think it's important to stop here for a second to ask, why is this important to Ecclesiastes? And I want to say that in any wisdom literature, you have the tale of two cities, as it were. On the one hand, you have and on the other hand, you have wisdom. And throughout all literature, that's what you're going to experience. So on the one hand, folly is the person who they strive and they toil and they constantly try to do it their own way and they try to control reality and they're the people who keep bumping up against this all of, of reality. And that's ultimately a futile effort. You can see that in the Bible and I'm, I'm confident we can all see it in our own experience. When we try act against God's design, we just find that that's a futile effort. But on the other hand, wisdom is the person who accepts their existence and everything that comes with it. They can accept that with gratitude, um, even though it's ultimately not lasting. So they can accept that with gratitude and with joy that they exist, and they're not, they're not chafing under the weight of that design. They accept it for what it is. They recognize that their life and their experiences, everything that they have is a gift of God, but it's something that they can't ultimately keep, that it is, it is Hevel. Um, and we, such a person finds that they can't control reality, that only God controls reality, and rather than fighting against that, they accept that and they let go. Uh, they let go of the little control that they think they have. So when we think about gain, maybe one helpful image from the Bible is the power of 
people. Um, that human beings in Genesis 11, they are, they are trying to make a name for themselves is what, what Genesis says. And they decide they're going to build this massive tower to the heavens and they're going to establish their permanence on the earth by virtue of, of this gain, this advantage. Uh, the word's not used there, but I think the, the concept is the same. It's people who are fighting against design and the design that God has built to us, and trying to make a name for themselves. So that's gain. So that's the first word I think is pretty important to understand. The second word that I think is important is toil. Now, sometimes in Ecclesiastes, it's translated uh, work or labor, um, but I think toil is the right translation because it has a negative connotation here. Um, so it's one of, it could be toil, it could be facility, it could be trouble, like just, just the trouble of life is sort of how that word can be translated. And I think that there is an, an important distinction to be made here between work on the one hand and toil. So we know from Genesis 1 and 2 that work is a good part of God's design, um, like so many other things. There are things that God has built into creation that are a part of his design, um, work being one of those things. Human beings were made for meaningful work. We were made for relationships that are a mutual blessing. Uh, we were made for fruitfulness. Genesis 1 and 2 is, is crystal clear on this, that work isn't something that is, is, a, is a part of the fall. Um, I think about marriage in the same way, that I have possible view of marriage because it's a part of God's good design. It's there before the fall took place. So work is one thing. Genesis 3, though, is the reality that we find ourselves in. That's where beings went their own way and ultimately dragged the rest of the of creation with them. Genesis 3.17 is where we have this category of toil or futility. So uh, human beings, uh, rather than listening to what God had said in terms of, you know, setting on the things that they could do, he told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know the story that they did. And God is, uh, he curses them. Uh, he curses the serpent. He curses Man, so all of those good things that God had put in place in Genesis 1 and 2 are now corrupted. So when uh, the woman is cursed, it says that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And there you have this, this perfect relationship, which was meant to be a source of mutual blessing, is now tainted by the fall. So that people have, uh, their, their desires are just warped. Human beings were made for meaningful work. So when the man is cursed, it actually says that the ground is cursed because of him. And work, which was a part of God's good design, now becomes toil. Uh, so it says that through toil and pain, we are going to work the ground. Now, I think that it's important to make this distinction between work and between toil because of different things. I would maintain that work is still a part of God's good design. It is a source of blessing, and I think the Old Testament describes that in lots of different ways. 
Um, toil, though, is the person who just, they view it as an ultimate thing. Uh, so when they toil, there's just no meaning to their work. They don't do it with any joy or with any satisfaction or any sense that the Creator has given them that work as a gift. So I think that it is it's an important distinction. Work is a good and blessed gift of God, while toil is just this futile striving. And the remainder of the passage, to get back to Ecclesiastes, it bears out the answer to this question that the teacher asks in 1.3. What gain does man have from all his toil? Uh, the answer is nothing. There is no ultimate advantage. Human beings have no edge over creation, and they have no edge over life itself. And I think that's just reality. To go even a step further, and maybe to take a time out and pause just to reflect on this a little bit more, even creation itself doesn't experience gain. So if you look at verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and sends back to its place. So the sun doesn't hang out anywhere. It doesn't experience any gain or any surplus. It runs its course and then it sprints back to start it again. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. So again, there's no surplus there. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. To the place where the stream flows, there they flow again. So <laughs> for, for you science types, you've got the water cycle. That's it. There's no evidence here that the streams sort of hoard the water a little bit uh, in order to keep some of it from the sea. The earth continues its cycles. So this idea of gain or surplus is even evident in creation. There is no gain. Um, even the cycles of the earth don't experience gain. So I think that what the teacher is getting at here is why should human beings who are mere mortals expect to experience gain when even creation itself, which has been here long before them and will be here long after them, even creation itself doesn't experience gain in that way. So the answer to the question is a negative. Um, there is no ultimate advantage uh, for all the toil that we experience day by day. But I think there is a subtext here. And when I say subtext, what I mean is something that's not explicitly stated, but that there's clear evidence pointing to it. So what's the subtext here? It's interesting to me as a reader of the Bible that it describes that the sun rises and the sun goes down and it races back to its place. That's similar to the language of Psalm 19, which talks about God's glory in creation. Um, the wind, it blows to and fro, north and south. It's interesting. Uh, the sea has this particular cycle, right? The streams flow to the sea, but the sea isn't full. So what's the subtext here? I think that the subtext is that there's order and there's stability in creation. The sun rises and sets over and over again in predictable cycles. The wind follows, at least poetically, uh, in Ecclesiastes, it follows particular patterns. Streams run to the sea, the water evaporates, the sky can't hold it anymore, so it dumps it back, and the cycle continues. So while the main point of the argument here is that human beings 
things compared to the earth are small and seemingly insignificant, we still live on an orderly and predictable-ish planet. Now, I, I, I say predictable-ish because a week ago, I was standing with Jacob and David out on this porch here in the glory of a New England spring morning, um, in t-shirts, enjoying life, and this morning when we woke up, it was snowing. So when I say predictable, I say predictable-ish. Um, it is a predictable-ish planet. And how did it get that way, right? How did the earth and its cycles get to be predictable? For the original hearers of the Bible, for those who are informed by biblical thinking, God created it that way. God is the creator, right? God is the one who sets things in motion. He's the one who continues to sustain all things. He is, uh, he is the one who oversees uh, creation, um, and on and on. He's the one who brings order out of chaos. God is the one who controls all these things. If you fast forward to Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Jesus is explicitly identified as the creator the one for whom and through whom all things were made. So again, uh, even in the midst of our insignificance on the planet, I think the teacher is pointing us toward the God who made it all in the first place and setting us up for the enjoyment that existence um, offers, which is going to follow soon, right? So, um, so the enjoyment isn't, isn't far away. And it's going to be a significant theme throughout the rest of Ecclesiastes. So if you go back to those eight references to joy or enjoyment that we keep putting out, those are good anchor texts because some of this might seem negative, but it always points forward to, to joy and enjoyment. So human life is a vapor compared to the cycles of the earth. And my last point is that human life is a vapor compared to the scope of history um, in verses 8 through 11. So the teacher continues on this line of reasoning, shifting from the cycles of the earth to human experience on the earth. Now, this might seem tedious, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, verse 8 is typically translated that all things are wearisome, uh, which is, again, something that doesn't seem to contribute to, to a very positive reading. But I think, uh, for a wide variety of reasons, that it's best translated as all things are hard at work. Um, I've also seen it translated that all things continue on eternally. And again, it's not a statement of despair. It's a statement of reality, that, that things continue on, right? Even if I'm experiencing negative personal circumstances, I can find some consolation in the fact that the cycles of the earth continue on, that the sun comes up, the streams are still running, and I can experience some sort of satisfaction in that. So things continue. The earth continues on. Human beings continue on. And dare I say that the Lion King uh, got it right, sort of. Um, it's the circle of life. Uh, there's far too much to take in here, more to do than can ever be done. Um, and I, I won't insert my voice here and sing the song for you, but that captures the spirit of this text that um, Ecclesiastes would say that the eye just can't see it all, the ear can't hear it all, and because human lifespan is limited, we don't get to do it all, 
Um, everything we think that might be new has just been here forever. Now, you can take that as hopeless, but I don't think that you have to. If there's any hopelessness in it at all, I think that it's because we are, in some sense, still pursuing our Tower of Babel, um, trying to gain, trying to make a name for ourselves in some way. So when we experience hopelessness, I think that it's because we've stepped out of line with design and we're trying again to build our Tower of Babel. Um, sooner or later, we're going to be forced to humble ourselves in light of reality. We're eventually going to bump up against our own limitations, our own physical limitations, our psychological and mental limitations. And even if you're able to Heisman Trophy those things in the short term, eventually we're all going to bump up against our own mortality. And if this... <laughs> this was the whole book of Ecclesiastes, we'd have to do some real interpretive gymnastics in order to provide a hopeful message in this. Um, reality is a complex thing, and we all know, even by virtue of our circumstances, that our time here is ultimately short, uh, that we do not get to keep the things that we acquire in an ultimate sense, but it doesn't mean that we can't experience joy in the midst of those things. So I think that another subtext here, another thing that is kind of floating around the surface, which is going to be made explicit in the rest of the book, I think the subtext here is to stop chasing it. That's it. Existence is a gift from a generous creator. Work, relationships, life, breath, all of your experiences are a generous gift of God. On the flip side, though, we can engage in toil. Uh, we can engage in futility. We can try to fight reality all we want. And the only byproduct of that is going to be that we're miserable. And ultimately, we're going to make everything around, everyone around us miserable in that pursuit. The Tower of Babel, as it were, will never reach heaven. So I think another, another thing that's going to be a subtext throughout is stop chasing it, right? That you can be liberated from that. You don't have to engage in that futility. Um, what's going to happen in the very next passage next week that, that Jacob will preach is the, the teacher will go on to describe all these different things that they've tried. They've tried wealth. They've tried knowledge. They've tried expensive building projects. They've acquired a lot of stuff. And the end result is that none of it lasts. But they can experience enjoyment. So over and over again, I think Ecclesiastes is going to be giving this very positive message of just let go. Just stop chasing it. Because ultimately, you're just chasing after fog which is um, not a helpful endeavor. I think that Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man gain in return for his soul? That's the way that Jesus would say it. Ultimately, you can just give up the whole world in order to forfeit your soul, your well-being, yourself. You can, you can lose your identity in the pursuit of those sorts of things. Ecclesiastes, I think, is a call to stop 
chasing it, that ultimately it's not going to last. So only a fool would try to make it last. So I'd like to close with just a couple um, just short reflections on how should this affect how we live? Because um, undoubtedly, uh, some of this is heavy going, and I understand that. Everybody listening to this right now has a different set of experiences with Ecclesiastes. You have people who studied it in college, who maybe studied it in seminary. We might have some translators of Ecclesiastes out there. On one extreme, people who are pretty familiar with the book, all the way down to people who only know it from the song that the birds sang in the 60s, uh, from Ecclesiastes 3, turn, turn, turn. So, and, and then you have everybody in between. This is really heavy going, and I want to be sensitive to that, especially in the midst of these times, it can feel overwhelming. But I think there's such a positive message in this book, and I agree with what Jacob said last week, that it's providential for us to be reading and engaging in right now. So I want to just end with a couple sort of exhortations, a couple ways that I think that the text is leading, and things that we can reflect on into the passage itself. So first, in terms of thinking, okay, how does this affect how I live? First, we live in accord with reality. So just because we're fireflies compared to the earth, it doesn't mean that we can't seize the day. It doesn't mean that we can't experience joy and some measure of satisfaction as we go about life. We can enjoy our families. We can enjoy our relationships. We can enjoy our work. We can enjoy gardening. We can, I use the example of lilacs, we can enjoy all of the good gifts of the Creator, even in the midst of our impermanence. But we try to defy the limits of reality, we've wandered back into the land of toil and futility and frustration. I think that accepting our God-given limits uh, helps us to open God in ways that are more joyful and whole, because we're not fighting reality at that point. We're accepting it as a gracious gift, but we have to let go. So first, we live in accord with reality. Second, we adjust our aspirations. So circling back to this idea of gain uh, in 1.3, even creation itself is not ordered to produce a surplus, according to Ecclesiastes. So why do we, mere mortals, aspire to that sort of gain or that sort of edge over life? Ultimately, it's a futile effort. It's Genesis 3. Uh, it's grabbing after something that God didn't design us for. Um, rather, I think when we choose to live in harmony with God's design, we're one step closer to the glory that God has in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, I like to refer to as Eden 2.0. Um, so, we adjust our aspirations. Third, we look to Jesus. There is quite obviously nobody in human history who embodies this kind of thinking except Jesus. I'm not going to turn this into a Christology course, but suffice it to say, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of somebody who just radically depends on the Father. Uh, somebody who's not striving, somebody who's not grasping after gain. So if you want to look at the temptation accounts in Matthew 4, if you want to look at Philippians 2, it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but he made himself nothing. He let go. So he's an example of that. He's also a perfect example of living in harmony with what the Father's doing. So lots of times in John's gospel, Jesus will say, I and the Father are one. And he'll also say, I do the things that I see the Father doing. Right? I think that that's another good example of Jesus living in harmony with the ways uh, that God has designed things. He's living in step with his Father. And I think in the book of Ecclesiastes points us down the road toward this sort of maturity in Christ, of submitting ourselves humbly to the Father, submitting to his design, and living in accord with that. And finally, we cultivate joy and gratitude in the life that God has given us. And I'm going to end with this, and I'll, I'll pray after I read it. I just want to read Luke 12, uh, 22. He said to his disciples, Before I tell you, don't be anxious about what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have, not, uh, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would add your blessing to not just the reading of your word, but the proclamation as well. And I pray for each of us in our way that you would help us to with your word. Help us to find words of life and encouragement and give us the strength by your spirit to let go and to, to live in accord with the way that you've designed the earth and our lives as well. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.